are they getting exquisite data collection doing this? Nah. Are there better ways to, them to get the data? Are there more typical ways? Probably. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian, and later in the program, one of the country's top technologists talks about balloons, radars, missiles, and more. And we'll have the week's top headlines in global air power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace, from America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine. GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn more about its latest innovations at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and as we mentioned, GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. And check out our other weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security and hosted by the resonant and well-modulated Mr. Vago Maradian. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? <laughs> Vago, this week in air power, well, it was a bad week to be a balloon. After <laughs> the United States shot down three more objects that were unidentified and flying, President Biden ordered a review of policy towards such engagements. He said today that it appears the objects were benign. We'll have a lot more about the whole kill chain involved in detecting, identifying, and bringing down such targets with our guest, Dr. Mark Lewis. Air Force Chief of Staff and noted brisket chef General C.Q. Brown spoke publicly this week. His topics included culture change in the Air Force, which we've discussed with a couple of guests. Another, the move from just-in-time logistics to building a reserve of war stocks, one of the lessons learned from the conflict in Ukraine. I know those are both topics you're very interested in, Vago. Lockheed Martin has filed a second protest of the Army's award of the future long-range assault aircraft contract to Bell. The Government Accountability Office attempts to resolve each of these protests within 100 days, and this one comes 26 days after the first protest, so it should extend the process no more than a couple of weeks, unless, of course, the protest is upheld, in which case things stretch out a lot farther. The KC-135 fleet is down for checks to make sure their tails don't fall off. That's apparently not a good thing to have happen. It's an easy inspection and a relatively easy fix, but it emphasizes the age of the fleet. While KC-46 is gradually replacing the KC-135 and there are plans for E-7 to replace the E-3, the other 135 variants are still in limbo. I was in the Pentagon 25 years ago and we were talking about how to move beyond the 135 airframe. Even then, we may finally be getting that direction, but it's clear time is not on anyone's side. The Air Force got back to some of its usual business this week when four Russian aircraft, including a Tu-95 and a Sukhoi-35, flew into the ADIS near Alaska on Monday, prompting a handful of U.S. Air Force jets to scramble and make sure they weren't balloons. India unveiled its supersonic light fighter indigenous trainer, the HLFT-42. Given the history of Indian defense procurement, we may see this in service someday. And Boeing in Morocco signed a deal for 24 more Apache helicopters with deliveries beginning next year. Good news for the line in Mesa, Arizona. 
That's this week's headlines in global air power. I bet a couple of those may have grabbed your attention, Vago. Uh, they uh, they did indeed. Uh, first, I want to commend uh, to uh, the entire great job, by the way, uh, JJ. I want to commend uh, to the audience to check out uh, the terrific conversation uh, that uh, Dr. Michael O'Hanlon and uh, Melanie uh, Seeson uh, of uh, Brookings had with uh, the chief. He is uh, among the most interesting and thoughtful uh, folks uh, in uniform, uh, and he lays out with enormous nuance, I think, uh, the challenges facing the force, the cultural engineering that uh, he is uh, trying to achieve, uh, and and the and we've seen evidence of across uh, the Air Force leadership and indeed the, the military leadership, but particularly acutely, uh, I think, with uh, uh, General uh, uh, Brown, uh, we've seen that uh, as well uh, with General Berger as Commandant in the Marine Corps, and I also want to give a shout out to uh, Jim McConville in the Army, who've tried to do this cultural engineering to better prepare us for the kind of operations we have for the future. You know, you mentioned uh, JJ contested logistics, getting back to basics, right? Having war stocks, uh, why, uh, you know, and, and being candid that agile combat employment is also risk mitigation, right? It's dispersal. It doesn't mean uh, that uh, there won't be a whole, you know, that we won't suffer losses. Uh, and again, preparing the force for, for that kind of action. So those were among the things that jumped out. And I suggest to the audience that they check out the discussion uh, because um, it's just very thoughtful and covers, you know, everything from cyber to, you know, join all domain command and control, uh, you name it. You know, let's uh, talk a little bit about the protest. Um, you know, I think everybody uh, knows uh, that uh, the Sikorsky and uh, Boeing team protested uh, the Flora Award uh, to Bell, right? And everybody knows that Bell is uh, the sponsor of our daily podcast, as well as our Washington and business uh, roundtables. Uh, the V280 uh, Valor was victorious in that competition. And folks know that there is a process and normally there's a protest. This one is a protest within a protest, right? Walk us through what we've seen and the reason the reason for the first protest and now the reason for uh, the second protest and whether or not it delays the outcome, right, uh, of the GAO that always seeks to do this, uh, you know, adjudicate these in about 100 days or so. So far, at least, Lockheed Martin hasn't told us the details of what they are protesting. That's in the documents that they have submitted to the GAO. What happened, though, in this process was the teams got an initial debriefing on how the award was made. And subsequently, a couple of weeks later, there was an agency review in which apparently the Army got into more details and Lockheed Martin found other grounds to protest. It's not clear whether this second protest starts the 100-day clock again or is an amendment to the previous one. But we should still see an answer from the Government Accountability Office within three months or so either way. Uh, which would make that around... In three more months, right? So around April still, do you think? Right around quad A time when it should be resolved? Perhaps, interestingly, it's going to come out likely closer to the end of May, which is markup season. Right. Uh, in interesting indeed. So something that we're going to be paying close uh, attention to uh, as well. Uh, I, 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 there, there's so much to discuss here. We could talk about Boeing's road to Morocco and how it ended up paying off. I'm sorry, <laughs> it was too easy. I knew you were thinking it, so I had to say that. And, and of course, uh, unfortunately, right, uh, India trying to marshal technology, develop these programs, but we've seen that some of these 
uh, or indigenous programs have spanned a while, the Tejas program uh, being uh, the light combat aircraft being one of them. Let me ask you about the KC-135, right? We don't do anything without tankers. And, and you know, there were the great tanker wars. Uh, there was the, uh, uh, the whole lease uh, evolution that started literally 20, uh, you know, 22 years ago, roughly, uh, when Secretary mm -hmm. Roach was, was trying to get a lease deal for tankers. And then that was unhinged because of the Darlene Druyan uh, scandal. What is plan B here? Because we are putting into service tankers, uh, KC-46 is now roughly at 14 or so a year. Uh, we have 350 some odd KC-135s. Uh, what's at stake here, JJ? Well, because this is, you know, I mean, obviously these airplanes are in various states of uh, various conditions, right? Tinker does a terrific job, literally zero houring these airplanes when they come off that mile and a half long line uh, in Dale City. What do we know? Uh, and what does this potentially mean? What we know is that at least in this specific case, it's one part. It's a pin in the tail, some of which apparently were manufactured below standard. So it's a quick open the tail, see if it's a good pin. If it's not a good pin, replace the bad pin with a good pin. But it also affects the entire fleet of aircraft that are on the KC-135 airframe. So it's not just the tankers, apparently 90 of which have already gone through this inspection but it's uh, the rivet joints, it's constant Phoenix, it's all of the aircraft based on that same, basically Boeing 707 airframe. And the E3 uh, as well, right? Sure. Uh, so there are plans for replacement of some of those. As you know, KC-46 is coming in. Gradually, it appears that we're going to have E7 instead of the E3, but that leaves still a good number of 135 series aircraft that don't have an obvious successor yet. Now, with regard to the other options for tanking, the Air Force is moving ahead as we've reported on KCY, a subsequent procurement of more KC-46s or a competition for a new tanker. They haven't exactly decided that yet. We'll probably see details in the budget for FY24 when it drops next month. But it does, it does highlight, right, the vulnerability that you have one critically important aging platform that is, you know, it's just a reminder, this is not a spring chicken of an airframe anymore. Well, and it also speaks to the hazards of a large single platform. A lot of the folks, for example, uh, during the debate on whether the F-35 should have one engine or two engines back 10 years ago, uh, were arguing that if you have a problem, it affects the whole fleet, unless you've got some second source. Here, we're seeing it's an airframe problem affecting a whole fleet, and there is no immediate second source. Uh, and we should point out, right, uh, that, that's, not, that's not coming from our friends, the sponsor of this program, but it is a point <laughs> no. that's well worth, uh, well worth uh, making. Uh, and uh, you joined our very good friends uh, at AvWeek uh, to uh, discuss uh, some of these very issues, uh, right, regarding new programs. Well, they noticed that we had actually made some news during our interview with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall a few weeks back, in which he announced that the Air Force had 12 new start programs lining up for FY24. The folks at the Aviation Week Check 6 podcast heard that and wanted to talk about what those programs might be. So you can hear that discussion with Steve Trimble, Brian Everstein, and myself uh, on their podcast this week. Uh, absolutely terrific guys, and they do uh, great work out there, Joe and the entire team, and and uh, and Steve, Brian, 
uh, and so many other uh, luminaries uh, as well. And now for uh, the meat of the show. Last week, we talked to Heather Penny, a UAV policy expert and fighter pilot with the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies on how one shoots down a balloon. Unidentified flying objects have been in the news uh, again over the past uh, week. And we should point out that we record this just as President Biden wrapped up his comments at the White House uh, regarding uh, the incidents, the uh, fact that intelligence was gathered on the flight uh, of the Chinese surveillance balloon, as well as the new national, what should be new national policies that will be promulgated to determine what deserves shooting down in the future and what not, as well as maybe global norms uh, and standards uh, regarding that. We want to open up the aperture uh, a little bit to better understand uh, the capabilities of uh, China's balloon program, as well as the capabilities of these kinds of craft. Joining us is the very man who knows uh, every piece of this chain. Uh, his titles are literally too numerous to recount from former chief scientist of the United States Air Force, former uh, director of uh, defense research and engineering, the chair of aerospace engineering at uh, the University of Maryland. And he's now the executive director of the Emerging Technologies Institute at the National Defense Industrial Association. It's great to say hello to my good friend, Dr. Mark Lewis. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Vago, thanks for the invitation as always. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, JJ and I have wanted to have you on the program since the very start, so I'm glad that uh, you can make it. And who'd have thought, you know, we're not talking about hypersonics, but we're talking about the original aerial, aerial technology. Exactly. Uh, this is the exact opposite end of the flight regime. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, as, I've, as I've joked, right? Montgolfier meets modernity. Yeah. Let, let's, let's uh, b- before we get to the capabilities of the balloon, right? We, we, we literally all were listening to the president waiting to get started on this program. Um, what did you think of his message, right? Because I can also understand, you know, on the one sense, the administration was caught flat footed. On the other, we're actually seeing that it was tracked from Hainan Island. Uh, we sort of knew what it was doing. And as a couple of friends have suggested, we wanted the Chinese to behave kind of normally in this process, and we wanted to say it's not a big deal to find out what it is that they were up to uh, and collect on it. And it appears that collect we did because we dialed in our radars, and we could talk more about that in a minute. What, mm-hmm. what did you make of the president's remarks uh, where we are, the policies we need kind of going forward, right? He said the administration is going to shape not just national policies on this, but also try to craft global norms uh, between weather balloons and what's a reconnaissance craft. Yeah, so Zavaga, I'll, I'll first start with a disclaimer. I'm an engineer, not a politician, or not a, a policy wonk. So, so let me let me let me just point out. I was struck by some of the things he said, but also some of the things he didn't say. He didn't actually offer an explanation exactly for what the other unidentified objects were. I mean, we know about the Chinese weather balloon, but now there are in a series of other smaller objects, and he didn't offer an explanation for that. Um, uh, although although he did say he did say that we're we're you know picking up the wreckage we're investigating it at this point he, he did say that yeah yeah it, it's you know the old line we we have, we have top men working on it you know <laughs> so and look the reality is there are there are a huge number of of balloons that are deployed around the world for you know experimentation and communication and all that. So, so it's not so surprising that we don't know exactly what these are, but it, it struck me that he didn't definitively say, yeah, and this was a weather balloon, and this was this was some poor student's experiment that happened to wander off course, things like that. So that that did strike me. You know, I, I think I'm also struck by the, he, he emphasized uh, not trying to start a new Cold War. You know, we can argue about whether, frankly, from a technology standpoint, we're maybe already in a bit of a Cold War 
in the sense that we, we, you know, we know that China is building up their emerging capabilities across the board. Um, we know they're developing capabilities to counter what they see as our biggest strengths. We know China is especially investing in technologies that they think will negate some of the advantages we have with the world's greatest air force, that they'll negate some of the advantages we have with the world's foremost Navy. And, and so, so uh, you know, I'm struck by that. Um, other than that, um, you know, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the engineering and science. Okay. Uh, And uh, it is going to be interesting. And maybe we can have you back on uh, along with some others to talk about uh, whatever uh, the ultimate strategy is, right? I mean, he did say that the the ultimate, um, what to engage, how to engage would remain classified, not to tip a hand to uh, our, our adversaries. What is it, Mark? Right. I mean, a lot of reporting in the wake of the Chinese uh, reconnaissance craft and particularly over the other three targets that were shot down, uh, one over Alaska, one over Canada and one over Lake Huron. What is it that we know about the Chinese lighter than air program and specifically the kind of technology that uh, this platform was using likely as it was going over the United States? Let's let's step back and talk about lighter than air technology writ large, because I, you know, can't near near space technology, right, as it's called. So actually, it's funny. It's funny you use that term near space, because that's a term that was coined in, in certain circles within the Air Force in the mid 2000s. And, and by the way, it's, it's a term that the lawyers hate. <laughs> and the reason is you got a clear, you know, clear understanding. If you're operating in space, there are no overflight restrictions. In other words, you're not allowed to shoot someone's satellite down. On the other hand, if you're operating in someone's airspace, if you're over their territory, they are allowed to shoot you down. And so this, this term near space, frankly, is a bit nebulous. Um, to, to, to further add to the ambiguity, you know, the obvious question is, okay, well then where does the atmosphere end and where does space begin? Well, it doesn't. The atmosphere is, you know, uh, gradually gets less and less dense. It falls off exponentially, but it never just ends. And there've been a number of folks who've tried to come up with some definition, some way to identify exactly where the atmosphere ends and space begins. And frankly, there's no good definition. You know, I, I, I joke that it's like trying to bisect the sneeze. There, there's no way to exactly define where, where, where the atmosphere ends and where space begins because it's, 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 not, it's not binary. And it, indeed, maintaining some ambiguity there has some advantages. So rolling back, when you talk about airships, balloons, et cetera, as operating in near space, from a policy standpoint, it sends heads spinning. And then, by the way, there's another element to this, which is the Chinese refer to some of their hypersonic act, uh, activities as near space because of the altitudes at which they operate. So there, I succeeded in getting hypersonics into a discussion of lighter than air. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, if you had bet, uh, you had bet me, uh, we joked about this last week, right? If you had bet any of us who have been following the F-22 uh, for decades, we would have bet money its first engagement would not have been against balloons. A balloon, uh, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. And by the way, Mr. Near Space, you were Air Force's chief scientist when we would yeah. talk about balloons and some uh, very innovative folks talking about how we could actually uh, leverage them. And we did right in terms of aerostats and, and the and the capabilities uh, that uh, they were bringing to bear. And you know, let's be clear. There are things you can do with balloons, light and air systems, even airships. There are things you can't do with all right, so it's not like this is it's not like we're going to have a lighter than air, a lighter than air uh, uh, gap with the Chinese. <laughs> right? this, is, this is not a technology that suddenly is going to 
going to overwhelm all of our defenses. There are severe limitations to the way lighter than air systems can be used. Let's unpack that a little bit, because over the last 10 to 15 years, the U.S. has looked at large persistent high altitude platforms, right, for ISR, comms relay, and a lot of Mm -hmm. other tasks, although they've been generally more focused on battlefield support. That's included Mm -hmm. long endurance solar powered heavier than air aircraft, what industry calls uh, high altitude pseudo satellites. Mm -hmm. What are the advantages and disadvantages of lighter than air versus heavier than air platforms in those kinds of roles? Right. Well, that, Jay, that's, that's, that's a great question. I, I like to characterize it as Bernoulli versus Archimedes. So, oh so okay. and I'm going to, full disclosure, I am firmly in the Bernoulli camp. Excellent. So, all right. So look, here's, here's the advantage of lighter there. Basically, obviously you're getting lift from buoyant forces, which means you don't actually have to keep moving as you do with an airplane to generate lift force on an aerodynamic surface. That gives you some advantages. Right, you can, in theory, remain stationary over a given location. You can move relatively slowly with a lighter than air system. Arguably, lighter than air systems should be less expensive, much less expensive than some of the the, the, the Bernoulli solutions, the aircraft solutions. So that's on the plus side. I'll give you the downside, and it basically comes down to the physics of how a lighter than air system works. Right, so. You go back to Archimedes' principle. Archimedes was the guy who figured out that buoyancy works by displacing a certain amount of mass in the medium in which you are contained. And for example, a ship that floats on the surface of the ocean floats to a height at which it is displacing a given weight of water. All right. Same thing happens in the atmosphere with the balloon. So the balloon is displacing a mass of air and it ascends to the height at which the displaced mass is equal to the mass of the balloon and the mass of the payload. All right, so have you got that picture? I'm still working on spelling Archimedes. So among the things that happens with a lighter than air system, um, because you're out, because you're dis- you have to displace weight in the air and because the atmospheric density falls off exponentially, essentially, if you wanna go higher, you got to get bigger. You need to be displacing a larger volume of air. All right. It turns out that up to about 60, 65,000 feet, when you do that, generally the biggest weight in that system that you worry about is the weight of the payload. And remember in the pictures of the Chinese balloon, you had the big white balloon or you had the sensor payload hanging underneath. And you probably guess that the weight of those sensors was more important than the weight of the balloon. If you try to go much higher, the balloon's becomes bigger and bigger. And at some point, the weight of the balloon itself starts to dominate. Now, why is that a problem? Okay, why is that a problem? Well, if you want to keep going higher, the balloon gets larger, but now that's adding much more weight to the system. So it, it, it starts to become a much more complicated configuration. So bottom line, lots of people talking about balloons at extremely high altitudes. 100,000 feet, even 120,000 feet. That's really hard to do because those balloons get large and they start to get massive. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, balloons, of course, operate at the mercy of the winds. Unless you tether them, and and tether balloons are a really nice solution, by the way, what we call aerostats. But if it's a free-floating balloon, it's operating at the mercy of the winds. There are a couple of ways you can deal with that. One is you try to add some propulsion. Well, except propulsion requires power, 
Power implies weight. You've got propulsive systems. So, and then of course you start getting complications. You, it becomes a more expensive system. There are other things you can try to do because you have different general uh, uh, wind directions at different altitudes. So you can actually float your balloon to different altitudes until you find a, a, a dominant velocity that you like. If your balloon, you can control the altitude by controlling the buoyancy of the balloon. So you can seek different wind directions and try to control the direction. That's doable, but you're still a bit at the mercy of the winds. You know, if you want to go right, but there are no prevailing winds going right, then you can bounce up and down all you want. You're not going to be heading in the direction that you need to. So, so controllability is still an issue. And that's another downside to balloons, that unpredictability. So why would the Chinese use them? Where are the positives? Let me give you, on the flip side, some of the, the positive benefits. And I'll go back to, if done right, they can be relatively low cost. They can be disposable. So you can build a lot of these things. It also turns out, and, and, I, and I think Heather Penny also alluded to this, they're relatively hard to shoot down. In a lot of our minds, we have this sense of, oh, well, you know, a balloon, it's like a child's balloon. I pop the balloon, boom, it goes, it, I, I destroy the envelope. Not this class of balloons, right? The pressure difference between the inside of the balloon and the outside of the balloon for most of these systems is really quite small. So you put lots of holes in these balloons and not a lot happens. You get a little bit of a leak. Some of the gas comes out, but it's not, they're not that easy to shoot down. Um, you want to hit a balloon with, uh, with a, an air-to-air missile? Great. If your air-to-air missile is a heat-seeking missile, well, these balloons may not be that much hotter than the ambient environment. So again, it poses a bit of a challenge. So these things can be pretty robust. And there's a, there's, there was a classic story that the, the Canadian Air Force had a weather balloon drift into air, air traffic con, uh, control lanes and they tried to shoot it down and they put round after round after round into the balloon and <laughs> they had a lot of trouble shooting it down. Now, circling back, if you use an air-to-air missile, chances are your missile is a lot more expensive than the balloon that you just shot down. <laughs> just from a standpoint of an exchange, you know, we always worry about this asymmetric advantage. You know, you don't want to use a half million dollar missile against a $10,000 target. That's one of the risks that you run. So, you know, pulling uh, on that string, right? I mean, for decades, the United States has been flying manned aircraft at high altitudes, uh, whether the U-2, right, which still remains in service, even as the airplane that was to uh, replace it, the SR-71, has gone out of uh, service. What do you get from persistent, slow-moving platforms like a balloon that you don't get from jets, that you get in a more granular way than you do from satellites? And moreover, what do you think the Chinese really were doing with this because ultimately, right, we were going to see them. They might, have, they might have gotten away with it a couple of times, but it's, you know, and this one was particularly blatant over Montana missile fields, over F.E. Warren, over Whiteman, you know, and, and apparently, you know, and for all I know, went over Oak Ridge and Charleston Naval Shipyard as well, right? What do you get from it? And what do you think they were doing? All right. So one of the contrasts for lighter system, the best, I would say the best contrast is lighter than there versus satellite. All right. So with satellite, you can get exquisite information collection, imaging, communications. Um, but satellites have, have two major drawbacks. One, obviously, higher altitude. So, so uh, uh, you're further away from things that you're trying to image. And two, they're predictable. You know when the satellite's going to be overhead. And the satellite is only overhead at a given spot on the planet for a short period of time. In low Earth orbit, you're uh, going around the Earth once every 90 minutes. 
So balloons give you, you know, contrast to that, lower altitude, uh, you're close to the objects that you're looking at, and in principle, they're, you know, hovering for longer periods of time. So that's the contrast. Jets kind of strike a balance there. Uh, something like the U-2, high altitude, but still much closer than the satellite. The problem with the jet is, and especially in the case of the U-2, it's a manned platform. So if you use it over someone's airspace, they can shoot you down and you've lost the pilot. So that's a bad thing. And there are, of course, other high altitude solutions, you know, like uh, Global Hawk, for example, uh, an unmanned system, uh, which combines some of the benefits of both the lighter than air system, but the uh, satellite collection. As the president just said, it's looking increasingly likely that we're not having an outbreak of new overflights. We're just seeing more of what was already up there because after detecting the Chinese balloon, some of our radars and other sensor systems were recalibrated to look for slower, not very reflective things rather than fast things. What sort of gates or limitations would have been put on the radars before the Chinese balloon incident that may have changed since and why would they be there? Whenever you're doing data collection, you want what's called a high signal to noise ratio. In other words, you you want to you want to look for the important objects and ignore the things that aren't important. You know, without without having been in the room, know exactly how the conversations went. It's most likely that they just recalibrated. You know, there there are sensors, for example, that will filter out based on speed. You worry about jets penetrating your air your airspace. You don't worry about a you know child's balloon that made it up to high altitude or a weather balloon. And I, I think it's just a matter of they the realization that hey we better be looking at at more of these things. In part, maybe politically motivated. Mark, let's talk about the next time, right? Um, yeah. China, because of this incident, may decide it wants to restrict its uh, engagements uh, over uh, territory, uh, over U.S. territory. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a wide ranging global balloon campaign, uh, something that they have been able to mask. I mean, obviously, the president talked about sort of global norms on what should be permitted and whatnot, because you could claim everything is a uh, uh, you know a weather balloon. Ultimately, that's an intelligence gathering uh, tool. I would point out that. You know, uh, I think it was President Eisenhower didn't want cameras installed uh, on Air Force uh, One or planes that were used to go to, you know, visit the Soviet Union, whereas it appears that, you know, Nikita Khrushchev's airplane may have been packed with cameras uh, as it flew over the United States. That having been said, each each side knew how to take advantage of the rules to try to do uh, espionage. Right. And and there are legitimate boundaries and, and stuff. How is it we need to respond to these? Because you can't shoot everything down. Right. The first one may have been a spy. Uh, a platform. The other three may have just been balloons, you know, in airspace, as you said, right? Students are putting these uh, pretty yeah. sophisticated payloads up there as well. I think a really intriguing question is why are the Chinese doing this? And one of the things that I, I learned from years in the Pentagon is we very often don't understand the, the, the Chinese motivation. So I'll, I'll give you my favorite anecdote, which is at one point we saw a Chinese facility when we got images of a Chinese facility. It was clearly a military facility because it was painted in camouflage. Except the problem was, it was the wrong camouflage. It was like this thing in a desert, and they painted it with jungle camouflage. And I knew it was sat around a table thing, trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. And, you know, the, the theories range from they painted it in camouflage because they wanted us to see it and know it was military, to someone's brother-in-law had the paint contract and only knew how to paint one kind of camouflage. So I, I, I'm always very hesitant because I, I honestly think that we often don't have a good understanding of exactly what motivates the, what motivates the Chinese to do what they do, because they, they seem to do a lot of boneheaded things, frankly. Are they getting exquisite data collection doing this? Nah. Are there better ways to, them, to get the data? Are there more capable ways? Yeah, probably. So it's, it's hard to know exactly what, 
what they're after. Is it strategic messaging that, hey, we can penetrate your airspace whenever we want? Hard to say. Um, is it probing to see if we'll shoot down a balloon? Again, it's hard to say. But I would say this. Again, I, this is where I, 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 I give you the disclaimer, I'm an engineer, not a lawyer. But I think we need to make it clear to any competitor or adversary that we control our own airspace. That means we can detect objects, we see them, and if they're operating in our airspace, we can remove them. And I, I think that's, that's an important deterrent capability and an important deterrent message. Mark, question I want to ask, uh, right? I mean, obviously, you know, you are a technologist. The, the yeah. Chinese also, despite the fact they can be somewhat, you know, you're sort of like, I wonder what they're doing. They, they always have a plan, right? And they're able to organize all of these little arms together in terms mm. of, you know, the, the mosaicing, the tiny little bits, right? I mean, as the joke went, we wanted a pound of sand somewhere. We build a nuclear attack submarine in a titanium box and special operators land on the beach grab the box of sand and, and come back in a clandestine mission. The Chinese just send 10,000 tourists and they say, mail back a pinch full of sand to this address. And they achieve the same thing in, in a lot less uh, glamorous fashion, right? What is the lesson here about preparing ourselves for sort of the next surprise, right? I mean, it seems like it's almost always, a it seems a failure of imagination, right? Guys wouldn't fly an airplane into the side of a building, but nobody yeah. would turn geographic features into artificial islands and then militarize them. I mean, it's the 21st century. They wouldn't fly a balloon to do that. And, yeah. and yet they would. So among the things I worry about with the Chinese is that they do strategic messaging. And, and frankly, they try to distract us. You know, watch my right hand while my left hand is doing something, something else. We see that across the board in some of the military technologies that they pursue this effort to divert our attention uh, or, or get us to focus our attention in specific areas. And you know, when I, when I think about the list of technologies that I worry about the Chinese working on, um, <laughs> balloons isn't really high up on the list. You know, I'm much more worried about what are the Chinese doing in artificial intelligence? What are the Chinese doing in quantum? You know, what are the Chinese doing in biotechnology? That's a really scary one. You know, of course, what are the Chinese doing in hypersonics? That's another really scary one. Uh, what they're doing in balloons, yeah, that's kind of low on my priority list. Okay, but let's talk about technology more generally. I mean, we have been competing for a long time on going faster and higher and watching what the other guy is doing to go mm -hmm. faster and higher. How often do we as a country and technologists in general leave old technology behind and forget to look back at what could we do if we were slower and lower? JD, excellent question. There's, there's a tendency to always want to do the next thing and not keep doing the thing that, you, that, that worked in the past. Or maybe, maybe we abandoned for some reason. And then if we revisit it with new capabilities and new technologies, new technical capabilities, we might revise and do even better. And, and I, I think you've got a really important lesson there. That sometimes there are examples where a, a low technology solution is actually a pretty good solution. Yeah, I'm reminded we we had at one point did a did a war game exercise where we were trying you know autonomous robots in an urban environment, and we found that you, the the blue team was using the robot, the red team was able to defeat them by throwing heavy blankets on them, and boom, they were gone. So sometimes the sometimes the low tech solution is is a pretty good solution, and and maybe maybe if there's a message in these Chinese balloons, it's you know don't 
don't overlook the low-tech solution. Look, I, I, I think we're seeing a little bit of that, if I can relate it to what's going on in Ukraine right now, where you know, we see you know, the, the use, maybe not, maybe not so much low-tech, but common tech. We're, we're seeing the you know, use of UAVs, for example. We're seeing the use of uh, cell phone technology for intelligence gathering and communication. So we sh- I, I, the message is clearly we shouldn't always be looking for the exquisite solution when the existing solution is there. Now, I would argue, as with everything else, you have to do it in moderation. There are times when you need the exquisite solution if you're going to be militarily superior or even militarily relevant. And so, you know, every, I, I can tell you, you know, when I when I in, in my various Pentagon roles, I would often have the people, you know, wander to my office saying, you know, instead of building more F-35s or F-22s, what we really need to do is build a fleet of inexpensive P-51s. And I'd always laugh and say, yeah, you'd have a whole bunch of airplanes that are totally useless and that, frankly, in the shooting war would fall out of the sky like raindrops. And we had to be cognizant of that. The low cost, all tech solution, frankly, isn't always the better one. And with that, Dr. Mark Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on the Air Power podcast. We've learned a lot. And I think even the much smarter people in our audience will have also. We hope you're willing to come back. I will always be happy to come back. Thank you for having me. And Mark, thank you uh, as well. I mean, it really always is a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be here, Vago. Thanks for the invitation. And we end this program on a very sad note uh, to report the passing of a good friend, retired United States Army Major General Gary Harrell of cancer at age 71. A special operator's special operator, Gary, a proud son of Tennessee, was the very personification of the quiet professional who served the nation on tough assignments throughout his career until his retirement in 2008. From Grenada and Panama to the Gulf War, Somalia, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and many, many other points in between. Our deepest condolences to Jennifer and the entire Harold family. Gary will be missed, but he will never be forgotten for all of us who knew and admired him as a real deal American hero.